Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Devin Sony, co-founder and CEO of Matador Gold Technologies. Devin began his career in finance, working with some of the biggest names, including Goldman Sachs and Highland Capital Partners. But as he explains, he related more to the entrepreneurs he was investing in than he did to the financiers he was working with. He decided to make a clean cut from banking, but along with it came the battles of ego and questioning if he had made the right choice. As the years have gone by, he's built, bought, and sold numerous businesses, which we'll get into in our interview. In this, I really enjoyed how he went into detail about some of the choices he's made that brought him to where he is now. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services, and they've been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them at any time. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now, on with the show. Devin, welcome to the show. Great. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So the world of gold is an interesting space. The, the world of finance and your background is an interesting space. And I think the best way to start off all our interviews is with an introduction and a background on yourself. And so what I'd like to do is just hand it over to you to kick off. Sure. Absolutely. So back way at the beginning, I grew up in Chicago and my family moved for, for warmer climates and moved to California when I was about 12. You know, I think growing up, I was always really fascinated by kind of investing in finance and, and that whole world that, you know, I used to read, you know, all, all those books when I was like, you know, like the Warren Buffett bios and stuff like that when I was like 12 and 13 years old. Uh, you know, early on, I, I thought I kind of wanted to work in kind of finance and banking, those sorts of things. I went to UC Berkeley, you know, studied finance and then kind of fell in during that first kind of big dot-com boom and, you know, sort of the the late 90s, early 2000s. And, and because of that, I, you know, I think like a lot of people living in the Bay Area at the time, I fell into the technology world and started working in investment banking at a firm called Lazard, where I helped companies like Amazon and Microsoft and Google buy, you know, kind of hot startups, basically, right? They, would, they were buying new technology companies to grow their business, and we were helping them structure, package, and sell, which is really interesting. But I think the one thing I learned was I really actually more so than you know the people that ran the big companies, more so than the partners at the, the investment bank, I really resonated with the entrepreneurs and the founders of the companies that we were selling. You know, I think they had kind of just had a, I just found their life more interesting, right? And I think there's always kind of like, who do you want to be in 10 or 20 years? And that side of the world, you know, resonated with me a lot more. I still kind of had the finance hat on. So I eventually moved over to the the venture capital side where I spent, you know, six or seven years investing in software companies and, you know, kind of financial technology companies, media companies, all that good stuff. And, you know, finally kind of was able to, you know, 
cut the umbilical cord and, and kind of branch out on my own and kind of started my own, you know, kind of like first business, which was basically you know, something really random, actually, like it's totally funny stories, like like the one minute version of it. But basically, I kind of knew I needed to make a clean break from finance in order to really start from scratch because it was like the you had like the golden handcuffs going. So I finally like put all my stuff and decided to travel all over the world for, you know, a couple of years and end up on this expedition vessel in Antarctica and got paired with a roommate, a cabin mate who had dropped out of college from Harvard. He was like a biotech major and had basically built this like really neat kind of supplement product from his background. And I was like, this is really cool. So we just kind of traveled around the world for a couple of years, like building this company. It's called Sprayable at the time. And we kind of incubated it in Chile and then, you know, kind of went viral for a while. We featured on like Good Morning America. So this is a really weird roller coaster of a startup that, you know, ended up doing really well. We kind of sold over time, but that was kind of my first entrepreneurial foray. And then I kind of realized, you know, I actually kind of liked the, <laughs> that was a lot of fun and selling to consumers was great and talking to distributors is cool and all that. But I, you know, I just realized I kind of liked being more of a technology company founder using some of my skills in M&A and things like that. So basically, you started a fund that bought software companies, sold them, started to really get involved in crypto back in like 2015, started a really popular project in, in crypto. And eventually, you know, over the last couple of years, I've really just been building, you know, technology companies, starting them, you know, kind of raising capital, taking them public. And that's kind of been the last couple of years. So a bit of a roundabout story. Interesting where you started. Let's go way back. And when you left the finance world, you mentioned that you had the the golden handcuffs, which, yeah, I understand that. It's probably a very hard leap or was a hard leap for you. What were you thinking? What were you feeling back then? And were there thoughts and feelings you had when you look back now and realized you didn't need them or, you know, they weren't serving you kind of thing? What was that like? Yeah. You know, at the time, what it really felt like was, you know, exactly like you said, taking a leap or, you know, going through a one-way door where there's really no way, no way backwards. And I think my concerns at the time were a lot more about my ego. You know, mm. it was nice having the business card, getting invited to speak at conferences and kind of getting pitched all the time by people a lot smarter than you, right? Like all that stuff was really, really cool. It wasn't the money. It wasn't the job. It was really just that, you know, I felt like I, a lot of my identity had been tied up in being the guy with the shiny business card and the nice, you know, like condo and car or whatever. And I realized that despite that, looking at the folks that were, five, 10, 15 years, my senior at these firms, it's like, I really knew that was not the life I wanted. I, you know, I wanted control how I spent my time a lot more. And I think when I kept thinking about that specifically, which is you want to be making those and have those same regrets and same fears years from now. And I, and I think that's really when I pulled the cord. And I always try to like, you know, have the side hustle, like what people call it nowadays, right? Like, let me go do something on the side and figure it out and get to work. And it never really materialized for me. Like I really knew I needed to make that clean break just kind of what I did and just said, look, I'm going to quit. I'm not going to go do anything else. I'm just going to focus on building something and don't even know what that is yet. Wow. Yeah. It's neat that you point out, and I think it's something that needs to be discussed more, is the ego and is how we, we really attach our identity to our professions and how hard it is to detach from that and make a move. And I joke around that I have an inordinate amount of lawyers as friends and you see them in these partner positions and they're making loot but they really don't enjoy their job. They don't enjoy that lifestyle. And you know, to be able to step away from that is an incredibly hard thing to do. So it sounds like it's worked out for you. And interesting kind of incubating and building a product startup way back when before digital nomads were really a thing. Yeah, actually, you know, some of my friends at the time, you really do become kind of the, the people you surround yourself with. And I think like, as a form of escapism, maybe a little bit when I worked in finance, like I hang out less with kind of other bankers and more with people doing weird things like living in RVs and 
that kind of stuff. And this was like back in 2012 before it was a thing, right? Like, yeah, uh, yeah. And that's kind of how I fell into crypto as well. Is like I hung out with a bunch of people that were weird and didn't everything going on, and they were all kind of you know buying Bitcoin and Ethereum and stuff like that. And I was like, I guess, I guess I should jump in. Wow, interesting, man. That's funny. Kind of uh, investment banker who's kind of like hiding in the closet of wanting to live the van life. <laughs> and, you know, I used to go to like warehouse parties and raves and stuff like that way more than I went to like the nice cocktail bars that all my friends went to. So like, it was yeah, nice fun time. So take us through that now that, I mean, you've built and run and sold a number of successful startups. What are some of the experiences and perhaps some of the advice that you give when it comes to building these companies? And in fact, I'd love to hear it from a, like a financier's perspective. You've been in the position of writing checks. What do the entrepreneurs or the management teams need to know? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that the really fine balance, like the knife edge balance that really, really is important that I've seen is, you know, coming at an industry, especially as a startup entrepreneur, coming at an industry, both from a perspective of knowledge, but with a fresh set of eyes. So I think it's like, you can't go out and say, I'm going to go change the cancer drug market without really having, you know, studied biology or like have a background in that sort of thing. But at the same time, you know, I think it's important to come at it with a fresh perspective, with a new view of doing things differently. You know, I think especially in a market like this, where people latch on to ideas and concepts so quickly, like anytime a startup gets created, the minute it gets a, a bit of success, there's like, you know, 75 copycats that, that get created all over the world because code is cheap, right? Especially. So I think coming at it from a perspective, hey, why are you a startup? A startup is there to innovate and move more quickly than other people around them, but also doing so in a market like this where, you know, the economy is not that great doing so from a perspective of reality and a, a real business plan and a real business model. So I think, I think, you know, understanding enough about the industry to say like, what's the math? And I'm not going to like change the fundamental laws of, of finance, which is I can't lose money in every sale and make it up with volume. Right. Yeah. Uh, where with a lot of people have done for the last five or 10 years, like living in San Francisco, my friends used to call it like the venture capital subsidy when everything was super, you know, Ubers were like $4 and you know, you can get groceries delivered to your house in seven minutes for like, right. Like for free. And you're like, yeah. this is the most amazing thing ever. I think, as I was saying, it's kind of like, Hey, you got to live by the real world of, of, of finance, but at the same time, you know, come at things with a bit of a fresh perspective and just, if you can do one thing and just move faster. There certainly has been a sea change with money no longer being just ridiculously cheap and thrown around left and right. It's all of a sudden the the new unicorns are the one who's bootstrapped and cash flow positive, right? It is funny to hear that the VC subsidy, where you look at these things and I'm like, this doesn't make any economic sense. But hey, just keep it rolling. Great to be a consumer. I, you know, a bunch of these friends that like lived off of the free meal coupons is all these meal delivery kits for starting. You get like a week free and then you'd switch. And then a month later, you go back to the same one. It was like, I haven't paid for a meal in three years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, of course. Of course. Now, in knowing that or in being through that or with that advice, excuse me, what about in the past startups? I want to get to where you're at now because I think it's fascinating with Matador, but just carrying on with the conversation, what were some of the bigger mistakes you've made along the way that you were really influential to your growth and success? I think I went in early on, again, with a bit of this like anti- establishment, like startup vibe of like, Hey, I've got to bootstrap everything and I don't want to raise any money. You don't want to pinch every penny. And I think a lot of times like that was great. The reason for that, I think was saying, look, I don't want 
the nightmare of the bad VC taking control of my company or us being over the ringer because we've got so much burn and we can't like, so I kind of went the other side and just, Hey, we're going to like be absurdly bootstrapped, right? We're going to start shipping our own packages, right? Because we don't want to pay for it, you know, like until we get the volume, we're going to package our own stuff and all these things, right? I remember we had $2 million in orders at some point uh, with our first startup and we were like sitting in my, you know, living room packaging them for like a week, right? And all that time and energy could have been put into other things. So I think there's also that side of saying, look, at some point you just need to not try to do everything yourself. And so that was certainly a big one. You know, I think the other one was, you know, sort of the same thing, which is like, you kind of go and at a startup, it's like two people or three people and a dog and a spreadsheet and an empty office. And you're like, well, I've got to go out and learn everything there is to know about everything. You know, I got to be a great marketer and a great CFO and a great CEO. And I think, you know, as a leader of a company, like knowing all those things is great and having a little bit of those battle scars and speaking the language is really important. But what's more important is as a leader, it's like, well, the only two things that are really important are making sure the right people are on the table and making sure there's enough capital to help those people thrive. And if you can just focus on those two things, everything is going to kind of work itself out versus you being the writing the patents and, you know, like just save a few grand and, and so forth. So interesting. And, you know, it brings to mind for me, there's entrepreneurs out there who they're serially successful and really in a speed that is mind boggling. They can build things really quick. I'm sure you've seen that and perhaps you've experienced that as well in, in your endeavors. What are the characteristics of those entrepreneurs that you see who are able to build value at speed? I mean, some, you know, and not take 10 years to do it. I have a lot of friends that have had that happen you know, several times. And, you know, we've certainly had our share of luck or, you know, execution with some of the companies I've started. But, you know, I think that the common thing is basically having, you know, a real kind of goal in mind and just making every decision towards a goal. And that goal could be exit. That goal could be, you know, $100 million of revenue. If you're sitting here again, you know, blank spreadsheet, empty office, and, you know, you don't know exactly what you're, what you're aiming towards, and you're going to kind of like zigzag all over the place trying to find product market fit. But if your goal is to say, my goal is to, you know, hit $100 million in revenue in 24 months, then there's a lot of things, A, you shouldn't be doing. And a lot of things, you, you know, focus areas you should be having, you should be hiring certain types of people, raising capital from certain types of people that are all going to kind of facilitate you towards that goal. So I think it's really kind of that single-minded focus towards one goal. And it's not, you know, often building the best mousetrap. It's not often, you know, vanity metrics of the most eyeballs or the, you know, most viral video. It's really about saying, my goal is to hit this and here's, here's what's going to happen, right? So I think that's been a big part of it. And the second part of that is often having, you know, the right pieces around the table of humans. And those could be employees and founders that complement you. It could be advisors that have kind of grown companies one or two, three stages past where you are today. But sort of knowing the next, you know, mile or two of road and what they're going to look like. And so you can kind of preempt that stuff. Because the one thing that, you know, creates speed bumps often is just not having the right people in the right seats, not having the amount of right amount of capital, or again, not, you know, knowing exactly which way to turn and a fork in the road. So if you've got that like really strong internal compass of here's where we need to go, you've got, you know, other people around you that have been there and say, here's the direction you need to go. And you just focus on that. I know it's very general, but I think those, those types of things really, some people don't know if they want to start a bootstrap company or a company to go public or a company to get sold or a company to make a lot of revenue, right? Those are all different goals. But I think having like one of those goals often is a better approach of, of moving fast, right? I hear you're saying there that that laser focus, that single-minded focus on a goal and then understanding what kind of company you want to be. And, and if it's build fast to sell, 
as one example versus a lifestyle company or something along those lines. What I'm hearing there though is, and I think it's so important is get rid of all of the noise. If your single-minded focus is to build fast and build revenue, what are the very selective things you're going to do and put the people in place to do that? I've noticed that as well. I see a lot of companies who don't have that just defiant laser vision and you can see how they meander versus the ones that do and really seem to find that luck and success a lot better. Something else that when you say about speaking with other people, I'll give you a framework or something that came to me was when I viewed companies, I kind of viewed them as you know startups. You've got these kind of five buckets of things, sales, marketing, operations, development, and so on. And then after speaking with somebody who did a lot of research into what it takes to build a billion-dollar company, the size of those buckets, in my mind, completely changed when looking at how you're allocating capital. And a vast majority of that capital was sales and marketing, followed by dev. Because if you can sell it, then you can go finance to kind of build it kind of thing. And, and so if you want to build fast, pour money on sales and marketing. And that came from a conversation I had with somebody who you know, changed my perspective. So I think I'm reflecting what you're saying there, but yeah, I appreciate your perspectives. The next thing I want to talk about, bring us into Matador and what you're doing there. And why I'm interested here is I think you've taken a technology bend into your new company, but it's focused on something that is such, you know, it's an age-old commodity. And bring us there. What is? What are you doing? Sure. And, you know, it goes back to something I kind of said earlier in the interview, which was I spent a lot of my teens, you know, reading about finance and financial history. And it's kind of what I studied in school as well. And, you know, you think about like all the things that have been going wrong or sideways in the world over the last, you know, four or five years, you've had a global pandemic, a bunch of wars, recessions, inflation, right? All these things. And you like look at history and you see, well, in all these sort of situations, gold and precious metals tend to be a, a really big safe haven, right? They, people invest in them because in inflation, they typically rise. You know, you don't have the volatility that you do with, with stocks when people fear war and things like that, right? And people's going to stockpile gold. And I think what we saw was that that wasn't happening with a lot of people over the last several years. What had really changed in the popular mindset of, hey, I've got, I want a non-correlated asset or I want a store of value had been, you know, things had moved to things like Bitcoin more than they had moved to gold, especially for, you know, people under you know, 40, I guess. And when you think about people in their 30s and 20s, like they're actually starting to make up the largest cohort of, of humans and investors. And they make decisions in really different ways, right? They use Robinhood to buy stocks, not they don't call their broker anymore, right? They do their research on Reddit. Like things are really different than they have been in the past for people. So, you know, we thought, well, at Matador, and, and you know, before that, I'd started a helped start a company called called Polymath, which a lot of what they do was digitize securities and tokenize them. So make things like real estate more liquid, make illiquid assets more liquid, make my crime money more liquid. So I kind of spent a lot of time in that space and known the pitfalls and challenges and had a pretty big network. So a lot of, you know, Polymath, Matador's history was kind of getting the gang from Polymath together to say, what if we can actually kind of do this with gold and kind of digitize it in a sense to make it more fun and, and gamified and actually add utility to it so that, you know, young people are interested in it. So it's not to say, hey, like sell everything you own and buy a big lump of gold and put it under your mattress. And that's what you should do with your shotguns and your you know, preppers. And you know, yeah, I was going to say so, for the preppers. Yeah, exactly. It's a little more of saying, well, look, you know, I think a lot of people will say a diversified portfolio makes sense. And, I, you know, I certainly just looking at history feel that 
having a you know bit of precious metals in your portfolio can make a lot of sense. But going, you know, the next step is like, how the heck do I buy precious metals in a way that's like easy and fun and, and all this stuff? Like there just aren't ways, right? You've got to go, you know, take your duffel bag of money to some pawn shop on the corner and walk away, like, you know, checking your like your shoulders, right? To make sure there's no one following you. Or you're buying like a fund or something that may or may not hold gold and holds a bunch of derivatives and a bunch of fees. So our thesis that matter always really to say, well, why don't we just modernize, you know, precious metals in a way that is fun for people to actually own? And, you know, kind of brings it into a modern light and we showcases it to, to people to say, hey, it's, there's still an asset and now's the, now's the right time to own it. So that's, that was really kind of the thesis of Matador was kind of building a business that does that. Interesting. Who was I just speaking to? I've done a lot of interviews lately. We were talking about, oh, the travel industry. And if you look at how the travel industry, how we're engaged with it, there's a ton of old antiquated ways. And we look at it, Expedia, Travelocity, all those they're 1990s technology, ripe for disruption. If you look at buying gold, and to your point, research is now done on Reddit. Who would have ever thought? And things are bought on really nice user experiences like Robinhood. So I can see the thesis there of bringing those together to go after a segment of the market, which really hasn't been kind of brought up to date and delivering what the market wants now. Now, if you were to expand on that, I'm curious about how does Matador make money? Is it simply fees of buying and selling the gold or is there something more there? Yeah. You know, I actually, it's funny because the fees, gold companies are usually treated as like precious metals dealers. And the fees that they charge are, are kind of this weird dichotomy because they're really low, right? You usually charge, you know, zero, a few basis points, you know, 50 basis points or a percentage on top of your margin, which, which makes it for like a really low margin, you know, kind of born business that you can't do a lot with. But the problem is like, you know, if you're trying to buy like a store value or an investment, you know, fees can be really detrimental to that, right? Like, oh, you buy $100 of gold and you just paid 150 bucks and now you need gold to go up 50% to break even, right? Like that's not that great. So what we actually decided to do at Matador was add a bunch of utility to the, the gold industry. So in the same way that, you know, a lot of like... In the same way, you can now buy a refrigerator, a pair of sneakers on, you know, kind of like a buy now, pay later plan. Like, I think a lot of people in this market think gold, you know, might be going up much more in the next year or two. And for a lot of people, that might mean, hey, I'd like to take a bigger position now. So we actually enable people to do directly, you know, on our app is to use an installment plan approach, which is basically saying, hey, I want to buy, you know, a kilogram or 100 grams of gold now. But I want to do it over, you know, six or 12 or 15 monthly payments, but I want to lock in the price now. So we let people do that um, directly using our app so that they can kind of turn it into like this monthly payment. And, you know, our margins can be a little higher because there's some, you know, kind of interest components baked in. It's like a little higher margin for us. But instead of saying, hey, we're just going to charge you fees to make more money, it's kind of like, well, we're actually sitting here providing a bunch of utility for you in a, in a unique way. And that's kind of where we make money. And you don't have to use it. But if you want to take advantage of it, then that's where kind of a bit of our margin comes in. And then, you know, the second part of what I think is like a, a better revenue model is, you know, you still can... All the gold we sell is stored at the Royal Mint in Canada. You know, we think it's one of the safest places to store it. But if you do want to get it redeemed and we do cool stuff, like you can, you know, kind of laser print your NFT or your kid's face or something on a gold coin and get it sent to you and things like that, just as a novelty that some people seem to like. So there's that side of it, which we can be charged for as well. So there's some unique value at things that we're adding that we charge for, but we try to keep the fees for the core business a lot lower. Yeah, I got you. Kind of putting a paid experience in and around it or, or utility to it, kind of a financing plan for somebody, you know, buy and margin in essence. Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. I can see how that develops into something more than 
just moving the commodity at a small clip. So in building Matador and, and from your past experience in our earlier discussion, I mean, is this a build fast to sell? Is this a build to go public? Is this, what's the vision here? Yeah, I think our short-term goal is really to be, you know, a public traded company sooner rather than later. One of the things that we found, especially with, you know, sort of industries that are a little more traditional is that there's a lot of neat companies that are sitting under the radar that are often very profitable, that haven't grown a lot or haven't innovated a lot. And what we found, and especially with my background in M&A, is that often with, when you're a public company, it can be a lot easier to be a consolidator in a space. So, you know, buying gold dealers or distribution channels or things like that. So for us, you know, the more we can kind of expand across the industry, the more value we can provide to consumers and better pricing we provide to consumers. And all that is a lot easier when you're public. So a couple of years ago, I helped start a company called tokens.com, which is like a publicly traded company in Canada. And I think it, it, at some point it may have held one of the records for like the quickest company from like incorporation to you know, being public, you know, it was like you know, six or seven months or something like that. And, you know, I think with Matador, you know, similarly, our goal is we've been around for a year or so now, you know, a little over a year, but I think, you know, the goal is this year to kind of be publicly traded and also just let, you know, consumers participate early on. I think the Canadian venture markets are really good for letting people, you know, invest in things a lot earlier than, you know, places like the U.S. markets do, which is why a lot of people spend time in Canada and myself included. <laughs> right on. Yeah, you know, it's something that I think that as Canadians, we need to be proud of is the Canadian capital markets and the public venture capital system is globally recognized as a great place for capital formation. And, you know, I think one thing, it, it gets a bad name that, oh, there's pump and dumps or that, you know, it's a real pain in the ass to be public. But I'm like, how is that any different than if you go to a VC? VCs can give you just killer terms. And, you know, rip your heart or, you know, you're never getting rid of them. You can't transition out of those. And it takes a lot of work to make sure they're happy. The same way it takes a lot of work to make sure the market is happy. So interesting to hear you say that. To go public, how are you going to approach this? You've been there before, but for the listeners, for anybody who's reached out and occasionally I'll get listeners who say, hey, you know, considering going public, how do I do this? What's the best path? Usually I say don't. But unless you <laughs> don't, know, unless you know what you're getting into, that's for sure, right? Yeah, it's because it, it can certainly be a lot of work. It's almost one of these things that the more you start with the end in mind, you know, the more straightforward it can be. And I think you know some of the biggest challenges for companies and you know ourselves included are because some of the bad actors in the space, things can become more difficult, challenging. And I think for us, it was about saying, hey, let's get our sort of financials in strong order and get them audited by a you know high quality firm. I think that's a big part of it. So keeping, you know, your books and things like it's like obviously like it sounds really boring to say, but you'd be surprised like that that ends up being the biggest sticking point for the vast majority of companies that want to go public is like, want to go public. Okay, well, I need to get audits done. Okay. You go back in your cave and you come back like three years later with audited financials, right? And you're like, okay, well, now no one wants to buy my stock anymore, right? Like, so kind of getting that stuff done early. I think for us a big part of it has been getting, you know, really high quality strategic partners on board on day one. So when we raised our first capital, you know, it wasn't from VCs whose mandate might be to, you know, sell the stock the day you go public, but it's actually a little bit more, you know, we raised some money from companies that are like in the gold mining industry that are, you know, publishers in the gold space, people that really benefit from our brand growing. And because of that, you know, they're much more likely to be kind of long-term holders. You don't want, you've seen more companies in the last, you know, four or five years go public than in the last like 25, because obviously there's been a bull market, but I think a lot of it is because 
you know, kind of people see the value, but because they see the value and there's a lot more new companies coming out, it gets really, really hard to stand out. So I think that the two parts of going public are one, you know, you said like, get your finances and the audits and that stuff in order, which is obviously really boring. But the other side of it is, you know, actually have a unique way to promote your business, get in front of shareholders and investors, get in front of funds and things like that. And if you don't have a strategy for that, again, like in the same way, you don't have a strategy for the finance side, like just don't go public because you're, it's going to be a disaster because getting attention in the public market space is probably harder than getting attention in any consumer market in the world, right? Like it's just, there's so many opportunities. There's so much noise. There's so many regulations and how you can communicate what you do. Attracting high net worth investors is like one of the most difficult you know, markets to target, right? So the question is, how do you do that in an effective way? And for us, a lot of it, you know, boiled down to, well, you know, we have a product that a lot of people that are already investors like, we want to differentiate that and try to have people that are our customers also be our shareholders sort of in a parallel way. And that's why it kind of made sense for us. But I think if you don't have a real good reason for being public and you don't have a great way to get in front of investors, it's a really difficult proposition. Absolutely. And, you know, it kind of comes to those conversations where you've had with, you know, potentially public market CEOs and they go public. And then they all of a sudden realize they're public and now they have to market their company. And then they say, no, I don't have time for retail investors. I only want institutions. You know, in these kind of, it's like, there's a lot of work to get there. But when looking at this, from your experience in the capital markets, what are you seeing as interesting ways to market and to engage investors, both on the retail and institution side? I think there's a couple of things that our companies have kind of done really well. And we'll want to continue to get better at. I think one is just a, you know, it's really kind of starting small. There's just like theory. And I forget who has Kevin Kelly or someone who's like a famous marketer said this, this concept of like having like a thousand true fans, right? Where you basically say, okay. I want to get, you know, a thousand people who love everything I do, you know, consume every piece of content I put out there. And if you do that, you know, A, you can make a, make a living, but, you know, I think the corollary is that you can probably make a living as a public market CEO if you can find a thousand people who really like what you do. But so I think a lot of it is just say, and, and what does that mean? Like, you know, we have, you know, at, at tokens, which was something already public and matter is not, but the shareholder calls we had had, you know, hundreds of people on them, which is like more than many companies, 10 times their size, right? Like people usually don't listen to shareholder meetings other than like the one or two analysts. Right? Yeah. So turning them to events and engaging people, knowing your shareholders, like on your early ones by like their first name, you know, like those kinds of things can be really, really helpful early, in the early days. And I think that's something that we've done really well with respect to industry analysts, right? I think it's really about the same as kind of any, you know, kind of almost enterprise sale, right? It's like, you really need to get to know your audience and who they are, what they're looking for, read the other stuff that comes out, start building a relationship by like sending notes and saying, Hey, I saw you put an article out on this, you know, here's what we're doing. Right. And I think, you know, starting small, but, but it's also just about, and this is often rare in really small cap public companies, but like you know, saying what you're going to do and then actually doing it, right? And sometimes it takes a year or two or three to get people to really trust you that, hey, I think, you know, I think we're going to do 25 million bucks of revenue next year. And you actually, hit, lo and behold, hit $25 million, right? You do that two or three times and people say, well, look, I can actually trust these guys, right? So I think there's a lot of that as well. So there's not an easy answer here. I think it's just collecting friends and institutions one at a time the same way that people could collect friends in the real world, right? It was just showing up. Hmm. That's really true. And what I also took from your comments there was for retail, delivering an experience, something where, you know, for tokens as an example, like hundreds of people on the call, but not just having a, you know, a bland read off the script kind of call, doing something a little bit more, 
giving people a reason to be there. And then for the institutions, recognizing that the way I see it, you have to serve them. They need good deal flow. They need good deals, but you also have to serve their purpose of filling a part of their portfolio. If you're not part of that, don't bother bugging them. They're never going to buy you. And if you are, recognize that it takes time because they're not just going to go like ditch a couple of stocks that they've come into to allocate more capital to you. It really takes time. So I appreciate those words there. Interesting stuff about Matador. So we'll put the info in the show notes. I like what you're doing there. How about some of the other things you've done as an entrepreneur? I'm curious a bit about, I think that you've worked a lot in consolidating smaller companies. What can you tell me about that? Because I'm sure the learnings there are applicable to the audience. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the big theses that I've had and you know still have is that there's this kind of you know, big trend, like a lot of companies, because you have the baby boomers, you know, like obviously the generation's now 60 odd years old, there was a regularly big population. So they all needed, you know, businesses and services and things like that. So all these businesses kind of got started like 40 or 50 years ago. And they all kind of grew up together, served, you know, the growing communities together, right? Like populations grew, everyone needs their plumber and electrician and hairdresser, like every service you think of in the world that people use. And the thing is, all these folks now are in their 60s and 70s being like, well, I built a successful business that makes, you know, millions of dollars a year. I have no idea what to do with that because, you know, my kids went and became lawyers and doctors and, and engineers. They want to come move to middle of nowhere, pick your state and run this company. So A, there's, I think there's this big wave of, you know, trillions of dollars of like businesses that are going to be left homeless almost, right? As, as people that don't want to be running them anymore, run them. And I think the second thing is that you have this almost like big fish in a small pond scenario where these companies had success for so long that they haven't needed to innovate, right? They haven't needed to add software and technology and marketing and all the things that, you know, people take for granted in the startup world if you're running a software company. So there's a lot of opportunities for improvement and efficiency. So I think at putting my finance hat on back with my, you know, operations and technology hat on, just saw a really big opportunity to say, Right now, like all the companies I'm looking at are cutting their teeth, fighting each other to death in the venture capital world, giving away free products and innovating in every marketing thing and, you know, start adding a new feature just for like for the new company, you know, overseas to add it five minutes later, um, you know, being venture funded and competing with companies that are willing to lose money. Right. And then you kind of look at the other side of this, right. And you look, you look on the other side of the freeway, so to speak, and you see all these companies just minting, you know, millions of dollars a year, not using any of that stuff. And I was like, there's a gap here. So I always kind of build a an action oriented. So we kind of just bought our first, bought a business with a partner and it was in the HVAC space in, in Phoenix, Arizona and didn't know anything about it, right? Like I didn't know less about it. I couldn't know less about it, right? But it was like, oh, well, I think we can do something with this. It's a you know, 34 year old company. It's never, you know, it's done well. It was a great team. And, you know, we, we bought it, added some new software, added the marketing and it turned into like, in many ways, like business on easy mode, like it was playing T-ball versus playing, you know, the MLB in certain areas, right? Like, in marketing, getting customers, all of a sudden, you know, we went to, you know, like tens of thousands of people coming to our, you know, website because we just fixed some things that no one else had thought to fix, right? Like, and, you know, adding, improving our Google and online profiles, like all these little things that like a lot of people don't do, we were able to drive massive improvements in the business. There was still a problem, like every industry is a problem, you know, the problem in that these industries are, you know, hiring and finding talent and, you know, training people and things like that, which obviously... Own challenge of itself, but we realized that if we were able to fix these things on one company, we could sort of fix them systematically at more. So, you know, a few partners and I started a roll up basically of kind of HVAC and plumbing and companies like that. And, you know, it's been one of these crazy unicorn style stories, right? We'll 
started the company two years ago, it'll probably do hundred million dollars top line, you know, this year, if not more, you know, 25 months from corporation. So like right place, right time, you know, right access to capital, you know, right team, like all those things kind of with the goal, like the goal is to build something really big that we can, you know, take public that's really appealing to public market investors. So that was the goal we had. And that's how we kind of built it out. Really interesting. And I definitely have heard a lot and read a lot about just the succession obstacle we're running into. And, you know, a lot of companies, real companies that are pretty much going to be homeless. So the question I've always had, though, and it's really, I think, been been amplified by talent after the pandemic is how do you find people to fill the seats, the talent you need? And especially when it feels like trades are so out of fashion, if you're going to get an education, it's going to be a white collar education. And if you're looking for something else to do, you might not have the motivation to go and actually get the red seal, the certificate you need for the, the more blue collar work, although it can pay you like a great living. So how are you overcoming that? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, and we had to become, you know, cheerleaders to young people and invest in training and find the right kinds of people. I think overall, it's a really, really big challenge. And But I think like the actual components that you're identifying are the things that we need to lead with, right? It's the fact that you can be, you know, 20 years old and make, you know, seven or $80,000 without any college debt. Whereas people are graduating college these days with, with, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans and no path to a real job. And a useless degree. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, it's just, yeah, like, but yeah, absolutely. Right. So I think there's kind of that side of it that we're seeing there's, you know, feeder institutions like, you know, like the military and things like that, that have been always really good for people in the trades. For us, there's two ways that we've solved the problem. And I think it's not, I think the long-term goal is always to expand the number of humans that are in the trades because I think that makes our life easier. But the two ways we've solved the problem or, you know, getting to solve the problem are one, really just trying to be a little bit better than everybody else. And that kind of means, hey, we actually offer, you know, great benefits and insurance and life insurance and college payment plans. And so people can really build a career at our organizations. And also, you know, because we're a, a more of a consolidator and we have lots of, you know, businesses, there's a much bigger path to upward mobility that we highly promote. So you can go from being a, a technician to a, you know, a manager to a regional manager, like really quickly, if you want to work hard in an organization, but then it's just, you know, letting, getting fresh people in the door and then investing that, you know, six or 12 months of training that you need during the slow season to get someone up to speed and, and valuable. So, you know, I think a lot of family owned companies, part of the reason actually, I think for the, again, for lacking some trades is when you have this big fish in a small pond syndrome, if you've got one owner and that owner is going to be there for the next 30 years, you're never going to kind of be able to move up as quickly as you want to. So a lot of these companies have not had upward mobility programs. They've had, you know, lackluster benefits. Like they've had, you know, sort of more run like a family business that is made for the wealth of the family that runs it. And I think we kind of create those high quality local businesses, but still add some of the perks that like a, you know, a Silicon Valley startup might offer, you know, meals in the cafeteria and barbecues and parties and, you know, benefits, insurance, right? Like, you know, all that good stuff. I think we're finding the right people a little more easily. So that's an interesting one. I think that changing how those businesses are run in the sense of being able to distribute that wealth in a way that instead of just going to the family, to the founder and the family kind of thing. Well, yeah, we want every person, you know, at our companies to be a shareholder so that when we go public, you know, people are going to see that, hey, like, this is what paid for, you know, Tommy's college education is, you know, the fact that we've got shares in this thing or house down payment or whatever you know, people's goals are. Gotcha. Now, how about on a more personal level? Like we did talk about your background there, pictures there and, and traveling 90 countries. 
outside of building businesses and chasing dollars, chasing the market, what keeps you busy? You know, I'm at this age, so I've got two young kids, they're, they're five and seven. And, you know, I think my goal every day is to try to spend, you know, about, yeah, I wouldn't say the same amount, but at least several hours a day with them just kind of hanging out, playing soccer, doing math, like whatever, playing video games. My son's seven is like the biggest basketball fan in the world. And, you know, we, because of that, we end up watching everything that like, you know, Steph Curry's ever like been in, right? We have like 70 books in her, like whatever, right? So, so there's this quote he has that I actually really resonate with. And, you know, I think he was filmed at the All-Star game like last week with like his daughter and, you know, someone asked him, like, so are your kids as big fans of you are as everybody else? And he's like, you know, I'd like to think so, but it's not, you know, I don't think they necessarily care how many, you know, times that ball goes in the basket. It's more about, you know, having a present and being a good parent. Like for me, it's like, it's very similar, which is, you know, I try to make as much time for family right now when they actually want to hang out with me. Cause I, you know, you see fast forward five years and they've got, you know, friends in a car and a bike and they're like, you know, they're not going to hang out with me anymore. So like you have those limited hours. So like I try to, th- those are kind of my hobbies. So we travel out with the kids. Like we're going to, you know, Japan and for the, with the family next week. Then we're spending summer in Spain. Like, you know, so we were able to kind of ma- marry that stuff together. What through the wonders of Zoom and teleconferencing and all that stuff, where I can work just yeah, well. Yeah. So that's an interesting one. It reminds me of I was speaking with a guy once and I'm like, oh, your father seems like a pretty cool guy. And his comment back was, yeah, for an investment banker. <laughs> and, you know, take from that that clearly the priorities were established and the career was first. And it's just, you know, that's kind of a disaster way to live your life, if you ask me. And and then something else that came to mind, we just had our first kiddies about 15, 16 months now, and was this thing that I read, 18 summers. That's all you get. And it's like, you know, he's almost two. Your kids are five and seven. Like, it goes quick, man. Yeah, so quick. Yeah. My goal is to be like sick of my kids. <laughs> like, we spend too much time with them, not index the other way. So, yeah, I think we're achieving that. Yeah. How have you done this? I, I interviewed a, a gentleman just the other day and, you know, he's built a half billion dollar organization and is always on the go, right? And I said, how have you been able to manage your relationship on a personal level? And he had his answer there. But how about you when it comes to managing that family with your career? Yeah. I mean, I think it was actually a big part of the reason that we moved to Las Vegas was, you know, we were living in the Bay Area. And I'd go to work or whatever, go, go to some meetings and it would take me like two hours to drive home in the traffic, right? And that would be like time and I'm away from the family. Uh, you know, I'd have to go travel all over the country for meetings and stuff like that. And I think one of the two things that were like really positive about being here is, you know, one, you know, everywhere, the entire freaking metro area is like 20 minutes away. So you, you might have to go somewhere. It's like real quick to get home. You know, it's a phenomenal airport, do all the subsidies. So even if I have to go somewhere, like I've got to go to you know, going to you know, Vancouver, like whatever, right? Like there's like 17 flights a day everywhere. So I can kind of go somewhere early in the morning and be home by dinner time, oftentimes if I need to, which I often do to the detriment of, uh, you know, sleep or whatever, but like I'll take the early flight and come back on the late flight. But it's, yeah, it's just making that decision, right? It's like saying, this is what I prioritize. I can, you know, there's always another conference, another business meeting or another dinner. If I kind of commit to coaching T-ball, I've got to be there, you know, I commit to going to the basketball games or having dinner with family, like that, that's always going to come first. And you know, I think, you know, especially the, the pandemic and the Zoom culture has made things a lot easier to manage, I think, and certainly appreciate that that side of a, you know, a difficult time for the world, right? Is people realize that they can do a lot, you know, sitting in, in their home. Yeah. Interesting. How about reading or your media consumption? I'm curious what. Yeah, absolutely. 
You know, I am really, really big on audiobooks. I'd probably knock out like, you know, depending on the length, like I'll probably do 40 hours of audiobooks a week. Um, I often do it while I'm working out, cooking, like, you know, often you know, in the shower, we'll try TMI, but right, like, you know, it's, it's like, I, <laughs> yeah, so I do a lot of that. Like, I'd say that I try to spend, it's a, it's a I sound weird, it's, it's, I spend a lot of time listening to like, you know, sort of like realistic, sort of like hard, like science fiction stuff. And which to me is actually kind of this like mirror into the future in a lot of ways. Right. So I kind of say, Hey, what's, what's the world going to be like? And it kind of lets me get out of this, you know, here, here's the present, here's what the present's always going to be like. And instead say like, what could the world look like in, you know, 1500, 200 years and, and that kind of stuff. And then the other side of it, I read a lot of like, or listen to a lot of like, you know, business biographies of interesting people and decisions that made and like, you know, the choice they made. So like, those are the two sides of, like, of what I tend to listen to a lot of. I used to do a lot of, you know, hey, let me listen to like the, the best marketing book or, you know, the best podcast or whatever. And then I think I've realized that again, I kind of want to hire, you know, great marketing people that listen to those things where I can kind of just focus on, you know, kind of like my, you know, sort of being present, if that makes sense and thinking about the kind of big, big ideas versus the tactics sometimes. Yeah. I always like this question because good things come from it. One of them that comes to me is uh, thinking about great books that I've listened to as well. It's just, to me, it's a great way to consume interesting content. One of them comes to mind is A Gentleman in Moscow. If you've really- I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah. Great, enjoyable book. And then something else that comes to mind when you talk about business books and marketing books is I start to think of myself, I'm like, these books, you could go back a hundred years and they're pretty much saying the same thing. And so it almost comes down to, you know, do you want to read those books or do you just want to go execute on a, on a framework that's been tried, tested, and true? Now we've just added some technology to it for the last hundred years kind of thing. And, and actually what came to mind was I listened to the biography of Hilton, Conrad Hilton, and how he built the Hilton Hotel. So anyway, that's what comes to mind from you sharing that. No, you're actually right. Like, it's so true. Like there's this app called Blinkist. I'm sure you heard of it. They, they like summarize business books in like 10 minutes. Yeah. And it's like, you get, you get the gist of it, like 10 minutes. I'm like, I do, I do those sometimes right, before I read a book. And I'm like, I usually get enough out of it to like spark the creativity. And then I'm like, I don't need to, you know, read the extra 200 pages that the publisher put in there to make it look thick. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It, it's something, it just bugs the hell out of me. And you start reading a book and you're like, my God, this thing's just repeating itself. You know, it could be a quarter its length, but it's yeah, the exactly. same stuff. So. You know, we're nearing an hour here and I want to just put it over a question to you just on final thoughts. When you think about your career, the companies you've built between technology, online and offline companies, you've had a pretty interesting run. What final advice would you have? And, and perhaps you can target it towards those CEOs and IR pros who are going out there to build public companies. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the big things that I've kind of learned from watching a lot of these successful companies again is really kind of thinking about if you're like a CEO or like running a business that's publicly traded or has an external shareholder base, like it's really important to kind of like over communicate and build those relationships, I think early on. And those are things that kind of stay with people for 10 or 20 years. And it's not about, I think you see like two types of companies, ones that sit there and kind of just like build and execute. And that's the way they show how great they are. And there's some other ones that are like, well, you know, we're going to go press release, like everything along the line I see is going to turn into like Long Island blockchain company. And, you know, XYZ business is going to say we're exploring like new ways to use chat GPT in our business. Like, I feel like those types of things like are gimmicks that may get attention. 
to your business, but like not the right kind of attention because you get attention from people that are chasing you know, new and ex- new things, not chasing you know companies that they want to hold forever. And and the more people and, and kind of loyal folks you have in your in your corner supporting you and, and you know trusting you with their capital, like I think that's the goal. And you know whatever way to do that, like that you think you're good at, is it is it communicating? Is it writing a book? Is it you know just delivering on results? Like I think those things are by far the most important. So it's kind of been the biggest focus for me as I kind of grow into an entrepreneur. It's really just saying, let me build you know relationships, with investors that care about what we do, that want to see us succeed long term, and have that same mindset. I appreciate that, and I take from that, you know, so often, or I think public company CEOs forget that they're the stewards of investor capital. You might go through your brokerage and it's going through the market and uh, you know the TMX group is handling their job as there to connect the two of them. But there's a disconnect there that allows them to forget that they're the stewards of these people's, these investors' capital. And you need to communicate with them and you need to you know, make decisions on their behalf. And so, yeah, I appreciate your thoughts there. And otherwise, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I think Matador is fascinating. I think your career is fascinating. So thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thank thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.